You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, guys, we are in week three of a really short four-week sermon series that we're calling Mission and Vision. Uh, This is an opportunity for us as a church to recalibrate two things— who we are, our identity as the church, and two, what we have been called to do. And so if you weren't with us on week one, we grounded both our identity as who we are as well as our mission back in the great commission of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus comes before his disciples. Disciples who quite honestly have been failures up to that point. Abandon Jesus in their hour of need. The leader of the disciples, Peter, denied he even knew Peter. Jesus, the resurrected Savior, shows up before the disciples. We're told that some worship and some doubt. And then to that group of doubtful, unbelieving men, Jesus gives this commission. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. He says to him, hey guys, everything you've hoped for. Everything that the people of God have waited for in the coming of Messiah, the rescue and redemption, the salvation, the forgiveness, the deliverance, everything you've longed for, I've done it. All authority in heaven and earth has now been given unto me. And then he tells them, go therefore to make disciples, to be disciples who make disciples. to to continue to grow as followers of Christ Jesus as we go out and make disciples. And how do we do that? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that we have commanded you. And we took that second section and we said, hey, listen, practically for us as the church, those commands of making disciples, how we make disciples, breaks out in three rhythms that we call knowing Christ believing the gospel, and loving people. Those three rhythms, knowing Christ, believing the gospel, and loving people, encapsulate what it means to know and understand the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God. To be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which means becoming brand new, learning to believe that which is the truth of the gospel, and then obeying all that Jesus has commanded, which is to love the Lord, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so today, we are on the second of those three rhythms, believing the gospel. Now, I want to start this sermon in what might be an odd way for you, but I want to start this sermon with a confession to tell you that you and I are on the same page. Here's my confession to you this morning. I am an unbeliever. Now, some of you may go, Uh Uh-oh, we showed up to the wrong church on Sunday. But maybe, just maybe to some of you guys, especially as we walk through this sermon, you'll find comfort in the fact that you are in a room full of unbelievers. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. I don't mean that I don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That my hope is not grounded in Jesus. What I mean is that moment by moment in my life, I fail to truly believe, to truly grasp, to truly be anchored in the hope of the gospel. 
Now, lest you need a couple examples, let me give you just a few examples from, from when I woke up this morning to when I showed up here. This morning, already, I have failed to believe that my Heavenly Father actually answers prayers the way that He says He has. Even as my wife and I have talked about some things coming up, I confess to her in that moment, I have asked the Lord to give us this because it looks good. I don't know if He will. As a matter of fact, it's stronger than that. I doubt that He actually will because He hasn't answered this prayer yet. As I've interacted with my kids this morning, I have snapped I've even raised my voice to them. Why? Because I believed that I needed to be in control. And that if I could just get everybody to listen to me, my life and their life would be better, except for the fact that my life testifies to the opposite of that. And then finally, on the way here, after receiving a a number of text messages from families that are out on vacation and a couple that are sick, I immediately thought to myself in a moment of doubt, God, you've prepared a message and now it's not going to go out because people won't be here to hear it. I'm not sure that you're actually going to move and work. Now listen, if if this type of confession is uh, uncomfortable for you, if it's a little disquieting, if it it throws you off of balance, then I'm going to invite you to get into a gospel community because you need it. Because this is what it looks like for us to be disciples. It is not to believe the gospel once, but it is to believe the gospel again and again and again because we are gospel amnesiacs. As quickly as we believe it, we forget it. And I don't mean the kind of belief that sits here where you notionally believe it. I mean the kind of belief that resides here that plays itself out in how you talk, what you hope of, what you believe, what you fear, what you invest in, and what you think of. And so this morning, what I want to invite you into is a rhythm, a pattern of life where you and I constantly are fighting to believe the gospel together. So let me pause before we go any further, and let's define some terms. Because one of the things that I know in being a pastor is that I can use words that you think you know what I mean, and we can nod along and be on utterly different pages. So the word gospel comes from a Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament called euangelion. Euangelion. You means good. And Gelion, you might hear another word that we use throughout the Bible, angel, that's in there, means message or messenger. The gospel at bare bones means good message or good news. And the term is not primarily a religious term. Right? This was a term that was used throughout antiquity. And it's a term that doesn't just mean good news as in something that will improve your day. It means good, life-changing news. It's the type of news that makes everything different. Let me give you a couple examples of gospel. A couple personal examples first. Here's a gospel message for you. The cancer is gone. 
That's good news that changes things. We found the baby's heartbeat. It's good news that changes things. Your husband is alert and he's doing well. It's news that changes things. I don't want a divorce. I want to work through it. It's news that changes things. We want to adopt you. It's news that changes things. And it's not just personal news. Gospel, good message, was not just for one person, but was oftentimes for an entire people or nation. In this time, as Jesus declares that all gospel news really points to Him who is the definition, the personification, the, the apex of gospel, these people would have recognized what gospel is. It was a phrase for them that sounded like, we have been liberated and we are no longer slaves. Good news that changes things. We have fought for you and defeated your enemies. It's good news that changes things. Those who once sought your life are now no more. The gospel is good news. And, and let's just think for a second of, of, of maybe three attributes of this term that we're introducing as Christ followers. First, it is good news, which means one, it's historical. It has happened. Good news in comparison to a good promise or a good hope or something that might happen. The uniqueness of Christianity is that our hope has already come. We are a people of the past who live life in the present with assurance toward the future. We are a people of the past. Everything about your life now and what you are planning for tomorrow should be based on the past. But it's not just historic, it's also true. Now, I know that when I say good news, I'm speaking to a people that in the last four years have come to coin a brand new phrase. It's fake news. Right? For most of us, news is something that we have to look at with a jaded eye. We've got to sift through to try and find what's actually true because inherently now what we believe is that most of it just simply isn't. But that's not the type of news that we're talking about here. This is real news that really happened that we can really believe. They, they, they had these... Uh, people called evangelists in antiquity. And again, this wasn't inherently a religious term. These evangelists are what we would nowadays call reporters. These men would be stationed just off to the side of a battlefield, waiting 
to see when the battle would turn in order to quickly run back to where they were from in order to tell the people the news of what had occurred. That if the tide had turned in their favor, they would run back and say, it is good news. We have fought for you. We have won. You will not be slaves, but you are free. And you could believe them. Why? Because they were there. They were in the midst of it. The Gospel is not a message that we pass on third hand. It's a message that we know is true because it comes from the mouth of the One who is truth. And then perhaps my favorite is that the Gospel, good news like this, it spreads. It's like a stone dropped in the middle of a lake. Immediately you only see the splash, but then the ripples begin to grow and grow and grow until they fill every corner of the lake. The Gospel occurred 2,000 years ago, but the ripples are still moving. You may have believed the Gospel for the first time years ago, decades ago, but I can assure you it is still reaching into the farthest corners of your life. This is the Gospel. But today, we're not just looking at a gospel, we're looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Christ Jesus. The good news that Jesus, for us, now is everything and has changed everything. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let me give you shorthand for what Paul just said. Jesus changes everything. So much so that the old me is dead. My old hopes are dead. My old plans are dead. And now what has replaced the old me is Christ. Christ in me and me in Christ. So let me just be utterly honest with you. My hope today is to do two things. One, to convince you that you desperately need to believe the gospel. And two, for us to get to a place where we can look at each other and say that we'll spend the rest of our days, moment by moment, trying to believe that gospel. Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians, his first letter to the church in Corinth, and he gives us an utterly profound statement. A big statement. If you're a part of Mercy's Door, you know that typically we walk through books left to right and we'll take oftentimes entire chapters. We're getting ready to enter in in two weeks to walk through the book of Leviticus, and we'll be taking big chunks of Leviticus. But I'm going to preach for about 45 minutes on about 10 words. So you can figure out what that means when we get to Leviticus. Probably it means eat a second breakfast before you show up. I don't know. But today we're going to spend a lot of time on a few words because these few words from Paul teach us the breadth and the greatness of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Today we're going to look at four components of the gospel that by God's grace we might set our eyes upon and believe. The first is this, the gospel is that Christ 
has become our wisdom. Paul says this in verse 30 of chapter 1 in the letter to the Corinth church. He says, and because of him, him being God who he's just referenced, and because of him, you, you are in Christ Jesus who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Let me read that one more time over us. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Paul begins this, this, this summary of the gospel by re-emphasizing what Christ had already told his disciples in the Great Commission. That to become a disciple and to be a disciple means that we are joined into God himself. That we and we are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That we are united to Christ. And then he says that from that union, from that occurrence, from that good news, Christ becomes to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Let's look at that first one, wisdom, for a second. The word wisdom comes from the Greek word sophia. It's where we get philosophy or sophisticated. It it literally means clarity. Uh, Think of a, 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 a pond that kind of is covered with algae that you can see nothing of until you drop something heavy in it and it spreads the algae out so that for a moment you can see straight to the bottom. Wisdom is that thing that takes what is muddied in our life and it makes sense of it. It gives us clarity. We often think of of wisdom as something that we need to to live a little bit of a better life, right? Wisdom is what we need in order to get better circumstances or to, to have better outcomes or to have better relationships. But wisdom doesn't increase what we already have. Wisdom brings clarity to what is muddy inside of us. Or maybe to put it another word away, wisdom transforms. Paul, in another letter to the church in Rome, he says this in verse 2 of chapter 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, or literally, be being transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, what is perfect. Paul tells us here that the beginning, the beginning effects of the gospel, the the first attribute of this good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us is that he is indeed our wisdom. He through what he has done, renews, transforms our mind. Uh, Think of the new covenant that's promised to the people of God in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, the Lord promises to one day take the heart of stone that is within his people, take it out and replace it with a heart of flesh. 
He promises to take a heart that is empty and lacking of His wisdom and law and to write His law upon their heart, to give Him His very Spirit. This is what He does when Christ becomes our wisdom. He removes the wisdom of the world. Instead, He gives us His wisdom. This is what it means when we read other places Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. Or in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think of these things. And so the question becomes, what is true? What is above? What is honorable? What is just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent? And the answer is Jesus. When Paul says, set your mind on the things that are above, not below, he says, set your mind on Jesus. When he says to the brothers in the church in Philippi in the midst of persecution and suffering, Set your eyes, your mind, your thoughts on what is true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. Think on those things he's saying. Think on Christ. The the work of Christ, the Gospel of Christ, is the foundation for everything we think. It becomes the filter that everything we process through goes through. My, my wife and I, uh, just a couple days ago, we went to a, a great little coffee shop in O'Fallon, and we ordered a cup of coffee, and they said, hey, the only way that we do our coffee is through pour-overs. And we were like, fantastic. Uh, coffee, that's all we were looking for, so yeah, that, that's great. And so we waited like 15 minutes, and I started getting a little agitated. Um, our, our littlest guy was there, and he was great for about five of those 15 minutes. And then the other 10 minutes came. Right, and so we're like waiting. My wife and I were like, we're going to do like a little date, just have a little, you know, quick cup of coffee. And the coffee had not come. And then finally they bring it out. And I was like, this better be the world's best cup of coffee. And it was pretty close to it. It was so good. And so immediately Rachel and I left and we were like, we need to get a pour over because that was good. And I know some of you who live life with me are shaming me right now because you've been saying this for a long time, all right? I get it. I'm an unbeliever. I told you that in the beginning, okay? We bought this pour-over, and it's really simple, right? You put coffee grounds just like you do in a coffee maker, and you pour hot water through it. And the magic is that all of the, the coffee grounds don't make its way into the coffee at the bottom. What comes out is delicious and delectable. But if what I would have done instead was simply put some coffee grounds in the bottom, poured some water over it, and tilted it back and began to drink, I don't think I was going to enjoy the experience very much. It goes through a filter that removes all of the things you don't want while putting in all of the delicious caffeinated notes that you do want. The gospel is the best pour-over system you're ever going to drink from. And I'm making myself thirsty as I talk about it. But it becomes a filter 
Nothing that you think through, no plan that you have, no decision that you need to make, no fear that creeps up on you, no hope that you are setting your affections on, no, no family discussion, no schedule for your day is wise or good if it has not gone through the filter, the wisdom, the foundation of the Gospel. The Gospel changes our logic. It changes what we deem important, what is beautiful or worthy. Right, I'll just, let me just step on a third rail here for a second because that's my job as a pastor. When you begin to debate with other people whether or not you're going to submit to authority or whether you're going to rebel against authority, here's the primary thing I want you to ask. Has that decision, that discussion, and that stance gone through the gospel? If it hasn't, I can tell you no matter where you land, it is not wise. When you think of what you will speak out against, or what you will stay silent with. Let me ask you, have you thought through and based that decision on the gospel? Because if you haven't, it doesn't matter where you land, it is not wise. When you think of what you'll invest in, or what you will refrain from, when you think of what you will do or what you won't do, what you run towards or what you flee from. What matters is, are we believing that Christ Jesus, through the good news of the Gospel, has given us new, better, eternal wisdom? To believe the Gospel is to become wise in how we ought to live out this life because of Christ Jesus. The gospel is that Christ has become our wisdom, but the gospel is also that Christ has become our righteousness. This is perhaps what most Christ followers think of when we talk about the gospel. Right? If I ask you what is the gospel, most of us inherently are going to discuss how Jesus on the cross has forgiven our sins, and the answer to that is yes and amen. That is the answer that Christ has become our righteousness. Righteousness, or what is oftentimes used as a synonym in the New Testament, justification, is a legal term. It means that we go from being guilty to innocent. It means that we go from being estranged from God Almighty to loved by God Almighty. But, let me once again say, even when it comes to this aspect of the gospel, 99 times out of a 100, you and I don't believe even this aspect of the gospel. Let me prove it for a second. How do you react when you sin and fail? Do you condemn yourself? Do you beat yourself up? 
Do you imagine that there is now a distance between you and Christ Jesus or you and your heavenly Father? Does it shock you that you're that kind of person? Is it surprising that you would need that kind of grace? Because if any of those thoughts make its way into your head and your heart, which they often do for me, hear this loudly, you're not believing the gospel. Because the gospel is that Christ is your righteousness. He paid your penalty, and then He gave you His righteousness. Paul says this, For He who knew no sin... The perfect one, Jesus, became sin, became my sin, became your sin, bore our sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin and we take his perfection. Which means now for us who are in Christ Jesus, who have been saved by the gospel, There is never a moment where your heavenly Father does not see you covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Which means when you sin, how does your Father see you? Perfect. Spotless. Just like Jesus. When you fail, how does your Father see you? Perfect. Spotless. Just like Jesus. When you haven't lived up to your own expectations, let alone what you believe to be the expectations of our perfect God in heaven, how does your heavenly Father see you perfect, spotless, just like Jesus? Listen, church. Shame and guilt, Paul says, have no place in the life of a Christ follower. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ is our righteousness. So every time you try and be a good enough person to be lovable towards the Lord, what you're functionally saying is I don't want the righteousness of Christ, I want the righteousness of me. And every time you fail in sin and believe that because of your sin, the Lord is now angry at you, displeased with you, shaking His head at you, what you are proclaiming is the righteousness of Christ is not sufficient for me. Instead, the Father sees my righteousness or, in this case, my lack of righteousness. But Christ has not become some of our righteousness. He hasn't given a boost to our righteousness. He hasn't given us 50%. He is our righteousness, period. You will always be loved. Always be approved of. Always be reconciled to your heavenly Father because of the Gospel which says Christ is your righteousness. You are in Christ, perfectly righteous, and you always will be. Most of us functionally believe that the righteousness of Christ is something akin to a mulligan. 
Now, I used to use an analogy where I would say, if I gave a calculus test to a kindergartner and they handed it back in with a name clearly and utterly unlegible, and I marked it up and said, hey, listen, you didn't get a single question right. You just utterly failed it. But I have good news. You may take the test again. Right? It's not going to go well. But I like the analogy of mulligan better, and here's why. It's a golf term. And if you give me a golf club, and you put me on the 18th hole, or for that matter, one of the 17 before it, and you allow me to swing that golf club and watch as the ball sails 90 degrees to my left, and you say to me, good news, I will give you another swing. I will tell you, I don't like your good news. Right? We are utterly incapable of being the righteousness of Christ unless we have already been given the righteousness of Christ. And I say to you, church, good news. This isn't your do-over. This is your done for you. He is our righteousness. The gospel is that Christ is our wisdom. The gospel is that Christ has become our righteousness. And then the gospel is, as Paul says, that Christ has become our sanctification. Sanctification is, is a word that, that literally means to be set apart or, or to be holy. Typically, when within the, the, the walls of the church we talk about sanctification, we, we talk about the process of being conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. Sanctification for us becomes the what happens after salvation. Christ has forgiven you, you have believed the gospel, and now what? There's, there's a term that theologians use to describe what we just talked about of the gospel, the forgiveness of our sins, the righteousness that we have in the gospel, and it's a term that's called monergism. Take that home, you know, use it in your Monday morning staff meeting. doesn't matter if you know what it means. You'll just sound smart. I do it all the time with other pastors, and I don't really know what it means. Monergism, at its core, literally means there's only one person at play here. When it comes to your salvation, when it comes to the forgiveness of your sins, when it comes to your righteousness, your justification, your reconciliation, whether or not you're okay with the Father, it's all on one person, Jesus. It's not you plus Jesus. It's not Jesus plus a little bit of you. It's not a great partnership between you and the Lord. It's Jesus only Jesus. It's always only been Jesus. It only ever will be Jesus. But then we get past that forgiveness piece and we get to this piece of sanctification. Being conformed into the image of Christ. Putting to death the deeds of uh, the flesh. Growing in our holiness. And we start to ask the question, yeah, but whose responsibility is that? Certainly, that's a partnership between me and Jesus. Or honestly, for most of us, what we believe is it's not even a partnership between me and Jesus. It's primarily me. Except for what does Paul say? 
I really love it when I don't have to stand up here and make a case to convince you, and instead I can simply point to holy, infallible, authoritative Scripture and say, who or what is our sanctification? Jesus. Jesus is our sanctification. What is the power for our sanctification? Jesus. What is the position of our sanctification? Jesus. What is our hope in sanctification? Jesus. So how does that work its way out? Is that something we just kind of go, um, okay, Jesus, do your thing. No, he, he invites us into it. Not because He needs us, but because we come to know and love Him, worship and trust Him as He conforms us into His image through the position that He has given to us and the power that He is to us. Let's start with position quickly for a second. And let me me pause for a second. We are running through the gamut of gospel-centered theology in one day in hopefully about 45 minutes. I plan to preach, by God's grace, the rest of my life, this message over and over and over again. Typically when I preach, my hope is to leave you without a ton of holes to fill in or questions to ask. That's not going to happen today. And and so here's what I need you to, to hear from that. One, don't look to me primarily for what you need to know. Ask your heavenly Father, the Spirit of Christ Jesus, who indwells you and is with you. And two, this is why we live life together in gospel community. So that you would have others around you to say, help me through this. This sounds big and lovely, and it's hard for me to get my arms around. So that other people can say to you, oh, you too? Let's spend the rest of our life trying to get our arms around this. Christ Jesus is our wisdom, is our righteousness, and is our sanctification. A a plant produces fruit based on what? Based first on what type of plant it is. You can have the healthiest apple tree in the world and it's not going to produce oranges. And you can have the most fertile orange tree in the world and it won't produce apples. Fruit is produced based on the type of plant that it is. And our fruit, the fruit of our life, is determined primarily not by what we do, but by who we are. Jesus in John 15, in one of the most complex and yet most beautiful descriptions of the Christian life, says to Christ followers, abide in me. You are the branch. I am the vine. You can do nothing. You cannot produce fruit unless you are attached to me. But if you are attached to me, you will produce fruit. Like, do you, do you hear, like, we, we don't like certainty like that. Not in our lives that feel a mess and that feel all over the place. 
We like gray areas. We like margin. We like places where we can equivocate. And Jesus just says, if you are not in me, you will do nothing. And if you are in me, with 100% certainty, you will produce the fruit of righteousness, of holiness. You will be conformed into the image of Christ. How does this position, Christ, as our position, practically play out in our sanctification? Well, it plays out because it changes who we are. Think of it this way. If you are truly loved and truly led by the perfect Heavenly Father, then you don't any longer have to figure out for yourself what's good or best. Right? Eve sits in the Garden of Eden. And she is told by the serpent, your heavenly father is holding out on you. If you don't eat of this tree, you will not be experiencing what is truly best. And in that moment, Eve believes, maybe I don't have a God that's out for my best. Maybe he really is holding out on me. And maybe I really do need to figure this out on my own. And it leads to sin that utterly fractures the world. Most of our sin is actually drawn out of a position where we believe we need to determine for ourselves what is best. A pastor I love said, almost every sin can be summed summed up this way. God, let me help you out a little bit. God, I'm not feeling very fulfilled right now. Let me help you out a little bit. God, I don't feel secure right now. Let me help you out a little bit. God, this relationship isn't going the way that I want. Let me help you, out, help you out a little bit. But if in Christ we are actually loved and actually led by the perfect heavenly Father, then what will come is the fruit of obedience. We are always secure, which means we don't have to fight for ourselves. We don't have to hold on to things. The other aspect of sin is oftentimes us, like my two-year-old, holding onto a toy that I'm trying to take from him in cleanup time, saying to him, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm Like, don't tell me. Maybe I'm alone, but that feels like 50% of my prayer life before the Lord. Is me before him going, mm-mm. Nope, can't have this. This one's mine. But if he has said, no good thing will I withhold from you, and through my love, all things will work together for your good, then when the Father pries my hands open, you know what he's doing for me? Good. And when he gives to me, you know what he's giving me? Good. Our position in Christ leads to sanctification, and Christ is our power for sanctification. Again, Jesus says in John 15, abide in me and you will bear fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. The highest goal of a branch that is grafted into a tree is to abide, to stay, and to have the life-giving sap of that vine flow through it. For you and I, 
the highest goal that we have in sanctification is to have the life-giving sap of the Gospel, the Spirit of Christ Jesus, take us over. You want to know how to be like Jesus? Then be controlled and compelled by the Spirit of Jesus. Because the Spirit of Christ Jesus perfectly loves the Father, perfectly honors the Father, perfectly submits to the Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And yet you and I live our life most times believing that the best and highest goal that we have is to become a little bit better. My favorite part of this is not true. Maybe it's the saddest part of counseling is I'll talk to someone, let's say, that has anger issues. And I'll say to them, at the end of, of getting some time to sit with them, so what's the plan? Most times, they'll say, I don't have one. But sometimes, they give a plan that sounds like this. What's my plan for not being angry anymore? To not be angry. And it breaks my heart. And, and I'll tell you why. Because that's oftentimes my plan for most sins in my area. Hey, what are you going to do to stop looking at pornography? I'm going to stop looking at pornography. That's great. How has that worked for you? Not good. How are you going to stop being selfish with your finances? I'm going to stop being selfish with my finances. How are you going to go about loving your spouse better? By starting to love my spouse better. How are you going to stop yelling at your kids? By not yelling at my kids. Has it ever worked? Because in my life, the answer is no. But when it's no longer I who speak to my children, but instead the Spirit of Christ Jesus who indwells me, Man, that conversation looks a lot different. When it's no longer I who determine what it looks like for me to get pleasure or comfort, then man, my choices and decisions and what I pursue look a lot different. When it's no longer I who am loving my spouse, but the Spirit of Christ Jesus within me, that love looks a lot different. To be sanctified is to be transformed, and you can't transform yourself. But there's good news, church, because Christ is our sanctification. This doctrine right here, I want you to hear from your pastor, is what led me away from the church, not believing this doctrine. By God's grace, I was born into a house where from my earliest memories, I can remember believing in God and being to, in some semblance, articulate that Christ came, that he lived, that he died, and rose again for my sins. I believed that I was forgiven. I believed that I was saved. And then I failed to be the kind of guy I wanted to be again and again and again and again. And it led me to utterly walking away from the church. Until the Lord in his grace, in my first year of marriage, in such a difficult spot, drove Rachel and I to a church out of desperation where I finally heard someone tell me the same gospel that saves you is also the gospel that sanctifies you. And I could have wept in that moment 
as a weight was lifted off of me where someone told me, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Jesus is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and finally, our redemption. Righteousness means that we are freed from the punishment of our sins. Redemption means that we are freed from its effects. Righteousness in Christ happens immediately upon the Lord giving us a new heart and faith in Christ Jesus. But redemption is something that we are still promised. As J.R.R. Tolkien says in The Lord of the Rings, a great definition of redemption is our hope that one day everything sad, everything bad, everything sinful and broken will one day come untrue. Redemption is being freed out of slavery and freed into the eternal presence of God. The same gospel that saves us is the gospel that sanctifies us. And it's also the gospel that carries us home. Hear these words. Jude chapter 20, or Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to the one who will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, he will present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to an inheritance, what we will get, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In Colossians 1, for He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. How is Christ our redemption? Well, faith is something that we have not earned, but is a gift that we have been given. And now we are told that it is through Christ Jesus and His Spirit that that faith is sealed. That the redemption that will come will occur. John Piper, a pastor I love, was one time preaching through the, the, the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. And he came to the verse that described that we are co-heirs with Christ. And he said this, which has just forever given me hope. If we are co-heirs with Christ, meaning that we now share in the inheritance that deservedly belongs to Christ, the only way for us to lose that inheritance is for Christ to lose that inheritance. And where is Christ seated? At the right hand of the Father who has already said to Him, Well done, my good and faithful Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Our redemption, our hope, now dwells and belongs on Christ. So what does this have to do with being a disciple? Our redemption being in Christ? 
Well, the fact of the matter is that we were made for life. We were made for hope. We were made for joy. And here's what that means, quite honestly. You're going to follow what you believe gives you life. You're going to follow what you believe brings you joy. And you're going to follow what or who you believe will ultimately give you hope. The Christian life is one where we are headed towards hope because we are informed, we are promised, we have faith that Christ Jesus is our redemption. And that if He is our redemption, then all that is good that we have been given cannot be taken from us, as Jonathan Edwards says, and all that is best is still to come. This is the gospel. Christ is our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. And He's our redemption. Maybe let me put it another way that's simpler. Christ is everything. Everything. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. It is the beginning the middle, and the end. When we planted this church, we were asked to write up a document that just said, why? Why plant a church? Why another church in Mascuda? Why another church, period? What's the hope of this church? What's its central aim? And as we begin to kind of kick around just different thoughts that the Lord was bringing, one that stuck to us, that we have said again and again and again is this. That the Christian life, the greatest goal and the greatest hope of the Christian life is not to become something better. It's to believe something better. Church is done. I know it makes no sense because everything in your life says become. Get going. Achieve it. If you'll only do, if you'll only become, if you'll only achieve, if you'll only grasp a hold of, if you'll only hold tight enough to. And the gospel says it's done. I've told this story before, but it has become something that has resonated in my faith and I hope will for you as well. We have five kids, all of them amazing, beautiful we play this game on Facebook when memories pop up where without looking at the date, we try and figure out which kid it is because we just make like carbon DNA copies. And so we just typically don't know. But one of the DNA copies that replicate through our kids is they all have huge adenoids and tonsils. We took our youngest to the doctors this past week and she was like, well, let me look, you know, before you assume that something needs to happen. And I'm like, all right. She goes, just so you know, I'll be grading him on a one to four scale of his tonsils. One, our average four is like the largest we've ever seen. Yeah, he was a four. All of our kids are. But part of what that means is they don't sleep well until their adenoids and tonsils are removed. And when they don't sleep well, they tend to sleepwalk. We went through a period of time with one of our kids where he would sleepwalk pretty regularly, but he would always sleepwalk and he would be so distraught caught in the midst of a nightmare or a bad dream while he couldn't wake up. And the truth was that he would walk into our room 
still half asleep, still in the midst of a dream that was upsetting to him, and he was utterly safe. He was utterly loved. His mom and his dad were right there by him. Nothing bad was going to happen. But he was utterly distraught because he was convinced that he wasn't safe and he wasn't okay. And the only thing Rachel and I could do in that moment is to say to him, hey, buddy, you got to wake up. Because once you wake up, you'll see you're okay. The Christian life every day as we live life together, your greatest hope, church, is to know that you're already okay. You're already forgiven. You're already perfectly righteous, perfectly loved. The work that's begun in you will be completed and you will be brought home. And the biggest thing you need to do today, the biggest thing I need to do today is wake up and by God's grace believe the gospel again. Let's pray.